Welcome to week one of a new series that we're launching here for our Wednesday night community. Um, <clears throat> we had some technical difficulties the first week and, and, and didn't get the other recording quite right. So um, re-recording this just because if you're jumping into the series or if you missed the first couple weeks, I really want you to have this foundation as a basis for where we're going in this entire series. The series that, that we're starting is entitled World Religions in Seven Sentences. Um, <clears throat> now, I have to tell you, I uh, unashamedly stole the title uh, from a book of uh, a mentor of mine, Dr. Doug Groteis. He has been a professor um, at Denver Seminary in the philosophy of religion department for many, many years. And his most recent book is entitled World Religions in Seven Sentences, A Small Introduction to a vast topic. Um, and I would highly recommend you to pick that up. But he, he, he does this very, very well. And he, at the beginning of his book, he writes this, the seven sentences idea uses particular and paradigmatic statements from world religions and one from the irreligious, Nietzsche, representing atheism, as, and I love this language, as windows into their worldviews and way of life. And so in this series, we're going to be walking through at least seven. We may do more. Maybe this was false advertising, and we'll do nine. But we're advertising is seven. <clears throat> but these are the sort of, um, if you almost think of it like a, uh, like a bumper sticker, what's a, what's a representative statement of these religions or worldview? The first one is atheism. And that sentence is, God is dead. That comes from the famous uh, philosopher Nietzsche, who declared the death of God. Secondly, Judaism, I am who I am. You remember, remember at the burning bush, when this is what Moses hears from Yahweh? Hinduism, you are that, or thou art that, it has been translated. Buddhism, its sentence or slogan is, life is suffering. Taoism, the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. Islam, there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. And then finally, Christianity, before Abraham was born, you can probably finish it, I am, Jesus' statement in the Gospel of John. And so <clears throat> Grotes goes on to write this in his book, the sentence approach is meant not as a reduction of any religion to a mere statement, but rather as an, as an entry point of intellectual exploration. And so that's what we want to do each week, is look at one of these entry points, one of these windows, this sort of representative concept that is we're suggesting at the core of this faith or, or, or at the core of this worldview and then sort of build around it to understand it. But that at least kind of gives us something, um, handles to, to hold on to the particular <clears throat> faith. And there are a couple suggested um, readings, as I, as I mentioned, the World Religion seven, in Seven Sentences by Doug Grotes is a wonderful uh, resource. I would also highly recommend Winfried Corderwin's very small book, Pocket Guide 
to world religions. And it's very much that. It's just a short book you could fit in your back pocket. Or if you wanted more of an expansive version of Winfried Cordowin's ideas, um, I would commend to you his book, Neighboring Faiths, A Christian Introduction to World Religions. And actually in April of this year, 2024, the third edition is coming out. So I would say hold on and wait for that because it'll be an updated um, edition. And then finally, one resource that I gave you that might sound odd, but by the end of this uh, message, you'll probably understand why. Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible. And that's the second um, extensively revised edition. And you may be thinking, why are you recommending that? Well, you'll see probably by the end of where we're going <clears throat> here in this first week. So what I want to do in this series is each week, I want us to consider one of these religions, <clears throat> worldviews, and <clears throat> number one, I want to seek to develop a fair understanding of it. What I mean by fair is important. I want us to live by the golden rule as Jesus taught that we should treat others as we ourselves want to be treated. That is to say, I don't want someone from another faith misrepresenting the Christian faith, and so I'm going to seek very diligently to not misrepresent someone else's faith. We don't want to, I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, we don't want to straw man an argument. If you know what that is, it's, it, it comes from the concept of, it's like if you were to build a straw man here and say, this is my opponent, and then knock him over. It's very easily done. Um, there's not a whole lot of merit in that. What we want to do is steel man someone else's argument. That is to say, create the very best version of it, the strongest version of it, if we're going to attempt to uh, go against those ideas. <clears throat> so we want to offer a fair understanding of or develop fair understanding. We want to offer a Christian assessment. Uh, we, we want to offer a Christian critique. We want to look at these worldviews in comparison. There's, a, there's a, famous, a famous phrase that says, contrast is the mother of clarity. When you contrast two things, you get clarity on ideas. I always say when I'm having a conversation with somebody maybe who holds to a different worldview than I do, I would rather have clarity than agreement. In our conversations, I would rather have clarity on your views and mine than I would agreement. And then finally, thirdly, we're going to explore how we might better love those who are adherents to these particular religions, faiths, and then know what is the best way that we can share the person of Jesus with them, a way that we can build a bridge that meets them where they're at. And we're going to see even our, our in some of our texts uh, Acts chapter 17, Paul does that very thing. He meets his audience where they're at. So he knows their religion. He knows their worldview. <clears throat> so here's what I want us to do for this very first week, or the question I want us to consider is one that maybe we don't even think about, but it's sort of underlying this whole study. Um, why are there many religions? Why isn't there just one? If, if there's only one creator God, why are there all these different religions and different claims of God? Um, how did all that begin? How did that start? How does the Bible account for it? Does it account for it? And then even, what is a theological basis, because this will give us this, for doing missions? 
or doing evangelism. We want to build a, a theological basis for doing that. And in, in what we walk through in this first session, um, this will be dipping back into, if, if you were with us, uh, I think it was the last year, we, did, we spent eight weeks um, going through what a series that was called The Unseen Realm. And if you missed that, if any of this is a little confusing to you, I would encourage you to go to the Listen and Watch page and bring up the Unseen Realm series. Uh, and again, we spent eight weeks going through a lot of this stuff in detail that I'm going to be sort of just skimming the surface of tonight. <clears throat> so here's what we're going to do. Um, so the Bible begins with one creator, God, the God of creation. Everyone knows who he is. And it's interesting, if, if you're a careful reader of the very first book of the Bible, you probably notice this, that the first 11 chapters, like it starts chapter 1 through chapter 11, and then it, from 12 on, something changed. At, le at least two significant things changed. One is the focus of the story changes, Chapters 1 through 11, it's all of humanity. The focus from 12 on, it, 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 it narrows down, and it simply looks at one family in particular, Abram, who becomes Abraham, and his descendants who become the Hebrew people. So the focus changes after chapter 11, and then when you get to 12. But another thing changes that, again, we probably might not even think about it. Chapters 1 through 11, everyone knows the creator God, and they worship or don't worship or they're obedient to or they're disobedient to the creator God, to Yahweh. The second we get to chapter 12, it's complete paganism and polytheism, and everyone is worshiping all of these other gods. And we oftentimes never ask the question, what happened? What changed from chapter 11? to chapter 12, that all of a sudden we have rampant paganism, rampant polytheism. Even, even we learn that Abram, Abraham, when we first encounter him, he's worshiping other gods as well. Look at, I want you to go to a couple passages with me. First, I want us to look at is Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 24 is a passage <clears throat> in which um, Israel is coming to the land um, Joshua's an old man. He knows he's going to die, and he's charging the generation. And he's saying, hey, guys, be faithful, okay? Be faithful to Yahweh. Um, you know, this is what you need to do. Don't go after the gods of the nations and worship other gods. And he, he, he gives this little almost a um, short story of Israel's history, and this is what it reads in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Long ago... Well, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they, and here's the key passage, they served other gods. And it's plural, not just the father. All of them, they served other gods. So we see, like I said, the second we get to Genesis 12, where we first hear of Abraham, we find out at least later references that he's a, he's a pagan. <laughs> he's a polytheist. He's worshiping other gods. And the, the answer to what changed from chapter 11 to chapter 12 begins to explain why there are many religions and even implications 
to our modern day uh, religious setting, modern day religious movement, implications to what <clears throat> went on there. So what changed? <clears throat> well, let's start by answering this question. This will be probably the easiest way to answer that question. Job chapter 38, here's the question that I have for you. Who was with the creator God before he created humanity? No humans on the earth. Let's say there's even no earth. Who's with the creator God? Well, Job tells us, if you've read the book of Job before, you know it's Job posing some arguments against God and some objections, and then God comes to him and says, oh, you really think you understand everything? You, like, you really think you've got it all figured out? And in this particular passage, Job 38, verse 4, we read this, where were you, God is asking Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you've kind of got it all figured out and you understand everything. You know, where were you when the, its bases were sunk, verse 6, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the, and here's the key phrase, sons of God shouted for joy. Who's this group? The sons of God. And you might say, well, those are angels, right? Well, that's not quite a nuanced enough answer. Angel is a job description. Angel just means messenger. This is a class of beings this is God's divine counsel, you might call it, his heavenly hosts. Or you could say his imagers in the unseen realm, created supernatural divine beings who are tasked with things, who are given, and this is a key word, kind of store this away because this will be important when we get to the end, who are given authority who are given responsibilities in the unseen realm. Now, one of the questions that oftentimes comes up is, well, why does God need a divine counsel? Well, he doesn't. <laughs> uh, but that could be asked of you. Why does God need humans? He doesn't. But yet he's made human imagers because God wants partnership. And he invites it. It's not because he lacks anything. He has no need but we learn that God is a God who wants to partner. So just like he, he's tasked you with things, he's given you responsibilities, hasn't he? And he wants you to do things, not because he doesn't know how to get it done. It's because he wants partnership. So he's tasked you with things. Similarly, he has created supernatural beings in the unseen realm, and he's tasked them with things, not because he can't figure out how to get it done, because he likes Partnership is the idea. And so these, these beings are the ones who, when we, um, when we get to this, this change between what happened from chapter 11 and chapter 12, remember that you know, shift? We need, we need to take these guys into consideration, at least some of them, because they play a big role in it. If you go to Genesis chapter 11, so this is the very end of that first section and everything changes in 12 forward, something happens in chapter 11, and if you know this, this uh, passage well, it's the Tower of Babel. It's the building of the Tower of Babel. His human imagers, who he's told to spread out over all the earth, they say, hey, let's 
all gather in one place, lest we spread out over all the earth, lest we obey God. And they build this Tower of Babel. Most scholars think this is a ziggurat. A ziggurat is part of a temple complex. And its purpose, it's, a, it's an artificial mountain. You've probably seen them before. And its purpose is to, we're going to uh, bring down God and then uh, bargain with him about our relationship and how things are going to work. It's our way to control the divine, is the idea of a ziggurat. And that's what the people do here in the Tower of Babel. And this is sort of like third strike. The God of creation is like, you know what? You don't want to worship. You don't want to obey me. It's, it, we're not going to do this on your terms. We're going to do it on my terms. So as an act of judgment, and again, we probably know this passage, he confuses their language. And then if we, uh, verse 7, it says, uh, come, let us go down there, confuse their language, their speech. And it says, um, uh, verse 9, and from there Yahweh dispersed them over the face of the earth. This is an act of judgment. It's, it's sort of his divorcing of the nations. You don't want to worship me? Fine. But he does something here that the ancient reader knew that we just sort of miss out on because we don't have the ancient context for it. We're given it by some comments made in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Take a look at this particular passage. Deuteronomy 32 verse 7 says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father. He will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, what's, what's the author talking about? He's talking about chapter 11. He's talking about the, the Babel event. When he fixed the borders of the people, now here's the key part. He did this, he, he separated and divided them, how? According to the number of the sons of God. Interesting. He divided them according to the number of the sons of God. He says, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Here's what the author is communicating. At the Babel event, what God did when he dispersed the people is he assigned to each of those people groups members of his divine council, members of this group called the sons of God. You might think of them almost as like step gods. <laughs> it's an act of judgment. These sons of God are still on God's payroll. They're obedient to him. They're on his team, on his side. But as an act of judgment, he assigns them to them to take care of them. So here's the question that you know, we have to ask is like, well, again, what happened? What went wrong? Well, at some point, these sons of God who were assigned to the nations, they rebelled. They became evil. Uh, they left fidelity to the Most High God, and took up their own agendas. When did that happen? We don't know. But we know at some point it did because <clears throat> what we have here is Psalm chapter 82. Let's jump to that. Psalm chapter 82, <clears throat> we read this. 
God has taken his place in, notice what it says, the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. This is the gods of the nations, the one that he's, he had placed over the nations. And he, he says this, how long will you, and if you want to know what the job description was of these sons of God, you're going to pick it up here sort of on the negative side. How long will you judge unjustly? So they were supposed to judge justly. Or show partiality to the wicked. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. That's what they're supposed to do. They didn't do it. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then here's God's um, statement about humans of all the nations, what they're like because the sons of God had become corrupt and corrupted people. They, these humans that they were tasked with, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Everything is chaos. Now here's, here's the condemnation on these sons of God. I said, you are God's sons of the most high. See, there's the sons of God language Sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then verse 8, the very last verse of this passage, the psalmist, given all of this reality, has a petition of God. He has a prayer. He says, God, arise, rise up, O God, judge the earth. And then does he say, and destroy all the nations. Get rid of them. They're crummy. No, he says, he says the opposite. He says, for you shall inherit all the, all the nations. He's saying, God, bring them back into the fold. Bring them back. This sets up, and this is what we have to understand, this storyline sets up the whole rest of the story of the Bible. It sets up the whole rest of the Old Testament if you don't get this part, the rest of the New Testament is just a bunch of random things happening. This sets up the whole New Testament. In fact, it's the nations against Israel. It's the gods against Yahweh. The whole rest of the story. It's like, I like to think of this example. If you've, if you've ever, um, maybe you've read the books, The Lord of the Rings. I've only seen the movies. I love the movies. They're fantastic. <clears throat> the first, like, four minutes of the movie sets up the entire trilogy, right? It's, it's only a few minutes, but it's like, okay, these rings are forged and they're given some to these and some to them, but there's someone who owns the power of the ring and this is, and then the whole rest, then they jump, you're in the Shire and there's the elves and there's all these different races. If you didn't have those first four minutes, the whole story is just random stuff happening, right? If you've got those first four minutes, you understand everything and you, and you sort of interpret it from the vantage point of the first four minutes. If you don't have this piece here of what happened at Babel, the nations being judged, <clears throat> these sons of God assigned to them, at some point they rebel, they become corrupt, they corrupt the nations, <clears throat> then the whole rest of the story is just going to be a bunch of random things. That's why this is so important. And that's why this is important as we jump into the 
how do we understand other religions in our world? This is where Daniel, if you've ever read the book of Daniel, do you remember some passages where he talks about the prince of Persia? And he's not talking about a human person. He says, the prince of Persia, the supernatural being, and the prince of Greece. And he says, Michael, the archangel, came and battled with him. And you're just like, Daniel, where are you getting that from? The, a prince of Persia? He's getting it from Deuteronomy 32, verse 8 and 9. Or we go to the apostle Paul. And the apostle Paul says, he speaks of principalities, rulers of the air, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul, where are you getting that from? He's getting it from Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. <clears throat> He's getting it from those first, again, four minutes of the story <clears throat> that are bleeding through the rest of the story that you just miss things if you don't get that very concept. <clears throat> so here's the question. Is the most high God, is he just done with the nations? Yeah, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and fine. <laughs> no. Because remember the change from chapter 11 to chapter 12? There's whispers in chapter 12 that tell you God's not done with the nations. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. Read with me verses 1 through 3. God calls Abraham, the pagan, the polytheist. Now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. That's important because that's controlled by one of these rebellious sons of God. I want you out of there. <clears throat> to uh, the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, here's the key part. Here's the whisper. In you, all the families of the earth. Who's that? The nations. In you, all the families of the earth, they're going to get my blessing back. Now, that's vague. What does that mean? How is it going to happen? Who knows? But there's whispers of the story is going to be completed. God is going to get what he wanted from the very start. He's not done with the nations, and there's a promise. It's a whisper. It's obscure, but we're waiting on tiptoe to see how is this all going to work out. And this, you guys, this is giving us the theological basis, it's building for us, the theological basis for doing missions all together. The Apostle Paul, when he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, his bodily resurrection, he links it to the delegitimizing, the dethroning of the rebellious sons of God. Go with me to uh, Colossians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 13. This is Paul. And look at the dots Paul's connecting in his head. And you, okay, he's writing to uh, uh, people in Colossae. These are pagans. You who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. You're not even Jews or Hebrews. God made alive 
So you were among the nations. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. How do you do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, here's the key part. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. That's the key event. And in doing so, what did he do? Verse 15, he disarmed who? The rulers, the authorities, remember those bad guys? And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul understands that Jesus is coming, his death and resurrection delegitimized these rulers and their authority is gone. And you might think, well, where did Paul get that from? Well, he got it from Jesus. <laughs> if you might know, if you know anything about missions, maybe the most famous passage that's used uh, is what's called the Great Commission. It's where Jesus commissions his followers. Go to that passage with me. It's Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> we read this. This is post-resurrection. Jesus calls his little ragtag team of followers. This is verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Some doubted, though. And Jesus came and said to them. Now notice what he starts with. This is super important. Again, don't miss the first four seconds. All authority in heaven and on earth the two realms, the unseen realm and the seen. All authority has been given to me. Now, so I, I've read this before. It's like, what, you're God. Didn't you have all authority before? Nope. Remember the first four minutes of the movie? <clears throat> the authority was parceled out to the sons of God who became corrupt. <clears throat> Through the crucifixion and resurrection, they're disarmed. The authority is taken back. Therefore, Jesus says... All authority in heaven and on earth, the two realms, has been given to me. Therefore, in light of that reality, go and make disciples of who? The nations. You mean the ones God divorced, but that there were whispers about in chapter 12 when he called Abraham that he's going to bring them out? Yep, those guys. <clears throat> Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Do you see this idea of what Jesus is saying here? The basis of doing missions, of going out to the nations and saying, hey, nations, the gods you serve, they're illegitimate. The most high God has delegitimized their rule through the person of Jesus, his life, death, burial, resurrection. And now, on basis of that, he wants you back. That's the story. Let me, <clears throat> I want to read for you um, Acts chapter 17. It's a famous passage. We know this passage. You probably know it. Paul finds himself in Athens, Athens, Greece. And he's in front of the city-state of Athens. These are the same guys who condemn Socrates to death, okay? These are pagan philosophers. <clears throat> Before I read that to you, though, because he's going he's to clue into their story. 
And they have this same story. They have this story that, well, the reason we Athenians worship this God and you worship that God is because the Most High God, well, he set it up that way. Now, they might think their interpretation of that is different. That's cool. That's fantastic. (laughs) That's wonderful. It should stay that way. But this is their story. Before I read that passage to you, let me read for you two passages from the philosopher Plato. Plato, if you want to kind of look this up, um, this is from his Creatus, line 109, B and C. He writes this. He says, once upon a time, the gods were taking over by lot, that is given to assignment, the whole of earth according to its regions. What does that sound like? Babel. Not according to the result of strife, meaning they're not like fighting over it. They were given it. They were assigned it. And then going down, he, he, he ends by writing this. So by just allotments, same language from Deuteronomy 32, they received each one his own, and they settled their countries. And when they had thus settled them, they reared us up, even as herdsmen. So, do you see what's even in the ancient Greek mind? <clears throat> How God set things up? Or uh, Plato, the laws for 713 C and E. <clears throat> um, Plato speaks of this ancient tradition in Greek history. It's like, there's this ancient idea way, way back. In, and he's not even saying he, he, he agrees with it. He's just saying this is like super far back in our story, in our Greek story. He writes this. In like manner, the God, that's this most high one, uh, in his love for humanity set over us at that time the nobler race of demons. Demons at this time doesn't mean bad guys, it just means spiritual beings is how it was used at this time. Demons who, with much comfort to themselves and much to us, took charge of us and furnished peace and modesty and orderliness and justice without stint, and thus made the tribes of men free from feud and happy. Their interpretation of, oh, it's a wonderful thing. They do a really good job leading us. This was the explanation for all ancient people of why people worship the gods they do. That's how the Most High God set it up. Now, given that, Go with me to Acts chapter 17. Paul comes to Athens. I gave you some context earlier there. This is what he says to these Athenian philosophers. Men of Athens, verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, there's tons of idols in Athens, I found also an altar with this inscription. This is interesting. To the unknown God. That is, the one who set it all up, but we don't know him. We have no access to him. We don't even know his name. He's just the unknown one. He's the most high one. He's that one. (laughs) To the unknown God. And then I love what Paul does here. Look at the bridge that he builds. What therefore you worship is unknown, I'm going to fill you in on. (laughs) This I proclaim to you, and then writes this, the God, that one, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of 
heaven and earth, the unseen realm and the seen realm. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation, of, uh, uh, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Now, here's the key part. Having determined, look at this, allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. When did that happen? That's Babel. That's Genesis 11. <clears throat> that they should seek God. So he, he set it up that way, <clears throat> that they should seek God. We know that didn't happen because the sons of God become corrupt, but it wasn't supposed to go that way and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for, and he quotes some of their philosophers, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. Now this is an interesting statement here. The times of ignorance got overlooked. But now, now he commands all people everywhere, repent. That means turn around to come back. <clears throat> because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from <clears throat> the dead. Do you see that the gospel message intersects with all other religions at this point? Every religion says, we serve our God. <clears throat> this is the God we serve, and this is the way we ought to. The gospel message intersects every single religion by saying, yes, that's true, but that God has been made illegitimate by the coming of Jesus, his death, resurrection. And now the most high God calling you back home. Let me go to just a couple other passages here before we wrap things up. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul writes this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against... Now look at the language here. What's our battle against? Rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil, where? The unseen realm, in the heavenly <clears throat> place. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians, <clears throat> sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, we read this, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have, this is like high lofty stuff, divine power, gosh, that's big, to what destroys strongholds. Now, listen to what the strongholds are. This is key. We destroy arguments. We, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, we take every thought captive and make it obedience. Why is he going here? Well, because here's what he's saying. You know those dark powers that were set over the nations that were delegitimized? They didn't just pick up their ball and go home. They've been delegitimized. That doesn't mean they're done. 
So now they have to traffic in falsehoods. They have to traffic in lies, in ideas, in lofty opinions, in arguments, in thoughts. That's what they have to use because they don't have authority anymore. The only power they have is the power that is given to them by humans, is what Paul is saying here. So again, what is the message of the gospel? God wants you back in his family. That's the, what is the gospel? That's it. Here's what God has done through the person of Jesus. Here's how that's delegitimized them. Now God is calling you back. And here's, here's a really cool thing. I'm going to go to one last passage here. <clears throat> Book of Revelation. Now, <clears throat> before I read this, here's what I want you to recount all these things we talked about. Who was set over the nations? The sons of God, right? They were given <clears throat> authority. They were given rulership. What, what, what status did they have with the Most High God? They were part of his divine counsel, right? Look what Jesus says in the book of Revelation. He's telegraphing something to you of what God has in store for you. Look, and the, the language is so important here. Revelation chapter 2, um, verse 26 the one who conquers, he's talking about humans, the one who's faithful, <clears throat> the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him, this is key, look at this, I will give authority, what? Over the nations. And then in verse 28, I will give him the morning star. That's, that's ruler language. What he's saying is, do you remember the ones who were a part of my divine counsel, <clears throat> who I tasked with responsibilities, who were part of that, who fell and rebelled? You're going to replace them. Think about that. That's the offer of the gospel. The Most High God wants you back, and what he has in mind for you is a level of glory, a position that you can't even imagine. He wants you part of his divine Counsel. You guys, there is no better offer. This is the only game in town that offers such a thing. Last thing I want to read is one of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis uh, preached a sermon entitled The Weight of Glory. And what he meant by that is this <clears throat> your neighbor has such potential glory in their ultimate state, you should feel the weight of that. And here's, here's how he says it. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses that is to be made at that level, to be put at that level. <clears throat> to remember that the, I love this, the dullest and most uninteresting person, who comes to your mind when I say that? <clears throat> the, the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day may one day be a creature who if you saw him or her now you would be strongly tempted to worship why is that well in scripture when people encounter supernatural beings like angels they often fall down and attempt to worship them and we're told our glory is going to be greater than theirs or else a being a horror and a corruption 
such as you meet now, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. And then he goes on a little later saying, there are no ordinary people. You have, this is, I love this, you have never talked to a mere mortal. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And the people that are out there among other religions, other faiths, other worldviews, they are these people. And we should feel the weight of their glory and realize that everything, we, every interaction we have with them, every kindness, every offense, <laughs> is pushing them in one of those two directions <clears throat> into this immortal horror or everlasting splendor. This builds our concept of what does it mean to do missions? What does it mean to interact with people of other faiths? We should feel the weight of that, and we should be excited about the offer of the message that we have. This is what the Most High God is giving you of what he's offering you, and there's nothing better than that. So I hope this was helpful as we go into future weeks. Again, I hope this builds sort of a theological basis for us of thinking about other questions that are, that are going to arise when we think about other religions. You know, questions like, well, isn't it possible that all, all religions sort of lead to the same top of the mountain? They're just different paths. Well, if this is true, there are implications to that. What, what if someone's very sincere? Well, if this is true... There are obvious implications to those questions. So I hope you'll track with us for the rest of the series. Thanks for being a part of it.